Welcome back to another episode of the Capes and Tights podcast right here on capesandtights.com. Today, episode 88, we welcome Mark Bernard into the podcast, co-host of Fat Man Beyond along with Kevin Smith, but also TV writer, producer, comic book writer, uh, a former journalist, book writer, whatever you want to call him. He's a writer extraordinaire. And he came to the podcast to talk his books, Adora in the Distance and Census. And we also touched on his short film that's coming out at some point in the future, Splinter. So check out this conversation with Mark Bernardin for episode 88. But before you do, visit us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Find Capes and Tights on there, as well as Apple, Spotify, and all your major podcasting platforms. Rate, review, all those things. Five stars, please. But for episode 88, it's Mark Bernardin, writer of Adora in the Distance and Census, as well as a bunch of other things. Enjoy, everybody. Welcome to the show, Mr. Mark Bernardin. How are you? I'm doing well, sir. I'm doing well. That's good. You sound good. That's a good thing right there. Excellent. Uh, it's like nine degrees here in, 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 in blistering sunny Maine. So, uh, oh, oh, Maine. Man alive. Last time I was in Maine, I almost died in Maine. <laughs> like because of the cold or because something else? No, I was uh, I was snowmobiling. Oof. And yeah, yeah, I have a buddy who's a big snowmobiler. So you should come to Maine. We're going to go snowmobiling for like four days. So that sounds fun. And on the fourth day, I almost drove up myself off a cliff. Um, uh, didn't go off the cliff. Instead, went into a tree. Oh. <laughs> and uh and didn't quite like explode a snowmobile like I hoped it would, like Die Hard 2. Like yeah. I, I was hoping that I was gonna have awesome, cool snowmobile shit happen. Instead, it just got like a bad concussion. <laughs> yeah, I, that's not what I want your memories from Maine to be, though. Like that doesn't seem like it's fun. <laughs> no, I mean it was fun until it wasn't. <laughs> Which I find well, I most of, most of life is. It was fun until it wasn't. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that's you know we're safe in in in. in uh, my studio here. We're not going to, no snowmobiles are going to come in. We're fine. It's going to be good. We're going to talk comic books. Excellent. Uh, but obviously you're a writer extraordinaire, as I like to call you. Uh, you have mm. a variety of different things. You have your little hands on, little hands. I don't know. You don't have Trump hands. Don't worry. You have hands. Okay. I mean, they're handsy, <laughs> I guess. But you have your hands in, but like <laughs> we're mainly, we do pop culture stuff here at the podcast, but we mainly talk about comic books, but I'd love to know like what, you probably said it a million times to different people, but like, what's the comic book origin story for Mark Bernard? And like, how did you start collecting, reading, and being involved in comic books? Um, my origin story uh, is, I imagine, like lots of people's origin stories are, not my fault, which is like my dad came home one day with a with a paper bag filled with like six or seven comics in them, you know, especially comics he should not have bought. Like he was <laughs> buying me like savage sort of Conan books when I was like 11, when it was, wait, they're just making comic books about this stuff. And like, he's going to let me read this. Like there's, there's a lot of sex in here <laughs> yes. and a lot of violence in here. And, you know, curse words that I can tell are curse words, even though they're not, you know, <laughs> the seven deadly words, but even still. Uh, and that was the, I'm going to go, where did you get these? The comic book store? I want to go back to the comic book store. <laughs> And that that was sort of the 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 entry for me into comics as a medium mm-hmm. was the black and white like Ernie Chen, Basima, um, you know Barry Windsor Smith, um, Savage Sort of Conan books. And then when I got to the comic book shop, it was the Incredible Pulp. I remember the name Incredible Pulp in Baldwin, Long Island, which I think is no longer there. Um, 
but I walked in and it's too much. Like if you go into a comic book store, it's just sensory overload. You know what yes. the hell you're doing. And so I didn't know where to start, Marvel or DC. I mean, I just, I, there was no way in and they were not entirely welcoming to fresh blood from the outside. And, uh, and so my first ever like superhero comic book was Marvel's Secret Wars, which did what it was designed to do. Yes. Which is, it's the, the sampler buffet of superheroes. Of everything Marvel had, it's all in this one book. And so that became my, like, oh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, hit, I'll hit this part of the buffet and this part of the buffet and the X-Men and Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four and we'll do it all. And that was, that was the first book that I collected. I remember, like, buying each issue and then just putting them all flat on my dresser top so that I had the tile of my 12 comic books that I owned. And, uh, and from there, I went to X-Men and Spider-Man and then eventually slowly worked my way back around to DC and got into, like, Dark Knight. And Watchmen were my, you know, not not bad ways in to DC, I think. Yes. Um, and then like the indie comics boom. This was this was mid late eighties. Yeah. So you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was huge. Um, I remember that being a really big deal. And I had like the first, and I don't know what the hell I did with them. I might have sold them for like a prom limo that I was trying to rent. Um, but I had like first editions of the first five or six issues of TMNT. Um, and then those are gone. Well, I feel like that's like the most common story of those those issues. It's like I know someone who had them. Like right. there's a very little number of people that I know say, I still have this beautiful comic book. Look how great it is. It's more like I think my dad took the pizza order on one of those a while back. <laughs> and like I think it went in the trash or something like that. I actually spoke with Kevin Eastman uh earlier or late last week. And uh, uh to talk about turtles and the last Roman and all that stuff and stuff like that. And he's actually a mainer. To his own right, because he was mm -hmm. born up here too. So that Kevin Eastman indie uh, comic book scene back in the day, connection to the podcast here being from Maine. But yeah, for sure, those those uh, those early editions of comp uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are not very uh, widely collect or widely available to people that nowadays. <laughs> no, I mean they they only made a couple thousand of those yep. things, and uh, and they're all gone now. No, they're not around anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you you obviously then became a writer uh you know to his own to your own right you you write obviously tv shows and and you've written some graphic novels and, and, and things like that what got you from what got you into the comic book writing side of things um it was it was being a comic book journalist first yeah it was it was loving comics you know loving them to death and then kind of breaking faith with them a little bit like i i i think everybody has that moment especially if you're an old ass man of chasing some massive cross line crossover that touches like 12 or 15 books that a publisher puts out. And I remember, I think it was the extinction agenda for me mm -hmm. and Marvel. I was an X-Men fan and suddenly I've got to buy 15 X books and I can't make any sense of it. And it's too much. It all got to be too much. And I was just like, ah, I threw up my hands and I was like, I'm done with it. Yes. And it was, it was a while um, before I kind of looped back into it. And that was when I was a journalist. And I had a boss who had who would get the big box for Marvel and DC, the comp box, where they would send certain journalists every issue of everything that came out that month. Mm -hmm. And so he would go through first and pick what he wanted to read. And then the rest of us got to like hyenas, yes. like pounce upon the, the, the big box of, of glory. And that was sort of my way back into to reading comics and buying comics. And then when I went to Entertainment Weekly, um, it was at that weird sort of soft point between like X-Men had come out, um, Blade had come out, 
and Spider-Man was on the horizon. Mm -hmm. And that was a very like defining point between those two worlds where like X-Men was popular and Blade did very well for the movie that they thought mm -hmm. it was, but it wasn't Spider-Man. Like Spider-Man blew up. Spider-Man was massive. And Spider-Man was the one that made people a realize, Oh, maybe comic books can work in the mm -hmm. movies. Like, without being afraid of what they were. You know, like the X-Men, while I love X-Men 2, I appreciate X-Men 1, but they ran as far as they could mm -hmm. away from what it meant to look like a superhero. Like put them in black leather. But what about the the the, the blue and the, yes. the yellow? What about the brown and the yellow? What about what about the costumes? Like, nope, nope, it's just the Matrix. Yes. Just do the Matrix, you guys. Yes. And so Spider-Man was big. And I was able to convince my bosses at Entertainment Weekly to let me cover comic books on a monthly basis. Like we had three pages in the back of the magazine in the review section. It was like movies, TV, books, comics. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, I got to go to my first conventions and I got to meet people who made comics. And comics is a relatively small business. You know, I, I, I try to tell folks that like trying to break into Hollywood is trying to break into Fort Knox. Trying to break into comics is like trying to break into a 7-Eleven. Yes. Like, it's still hard, but it's not impossible. And you've seen people do it, <laughs> you know? And so I, I I was able to walk around and meet editors and publishers and other writers and artists. And and after a while, they'd be like, hey, you can write, you know, and clearly you like the stuff. Did you ever think about writing comic books? And I said, yes. Yes, I did. I did. <laughs> and I still do. It's still do, exactly. It's funny how you say that there's um... – I talked to a person named Trace Dean a couple of weeks ago who wrote, wrote writes for a variety of different publications, but he also just released uh, in 2022 his first comic book, uh, mm. or one of his first comic books, We Ride Titans over at Vault. And he's like, okay, I did it. <laughs> when another story and something worthwhile and I have time to do again comes along, I will write it. But other than that, I'm going to stick to my journalism <laughs> <laughs> it was like he's like I did it. I crossed it off the list. Good to go. Next thing to happen it on the journalism side. So it is. It's funny how you transition. And then you basically went in from transitioning from, uh, you know, journalism side to full on. You write things for a living that are not more. I mean, you obviously have some journalistic side of things with, mm -hmm. you know, you and Kevin doing some things. Obviously, the podcast. I would guess it's more on the journalistic side than it is the creative <laughs> side. I, if you want to call it journalist, no, right. <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny though because I I remember when I was still at EW and covering yeah. comics and starting to write comics, I started doing the math. I was like, all right, I know what I make. I know what my page rate is. How many comic books would I need to write in order for me to be able to quit my job? And the number was too high. And 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 I and I understood that it was possible. Like I saw people like Fraction do it. I saw people like Hickman do it. I saw people, you know, there there were folks who had who had started indie books, made it to Marvel or DC. And then just went for it. And like those guys were writing like six books a month. And I know myself well enough to know that that's too many books for yes. any of them to have been good. <laughs> you know, I it, it, probably... you're right about it. Like, it's funny how you say that though, because like those people also write really good books. So it's not even like they, they stumbled on it. They wrote, they have to write a bunch of books and they write really good books. Yeah, they totally do. Like Bendis, what, you know, is great. And he was doing like, a whole lot of work and I'm not fast enough at the time I was just new at it and I just doing the math is like I can't this is this is not sustainable um for me to like I might be able to get them convince them to give me six books a month to write but they all wouldn't be good regularly enough that I'd keep writing six books a month 
And so it, it became for me, like, I love comics and I love writing comics, but it was never going to be the thing that made the money mm -hmm. that made the engines go. And, and it was comics that led me to television, you know, which I had always loved television, you know, cause I'm a fucking person who grew up in the 20th century. So of course you love television. television. <laughs> yeah. Anybody who doesn't, I don't believe it's like, I don't watch television who like television. Yeah. Bullshit. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was a, as an agent who read the first issue of genius, who was like, Oh, I think I could tell this as a TV show. And I said, mm -hmm. sure. Like to see you try because I don't believe you. Yes. And he didn't. But he did say, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I think I want to write television. He says, okay, well, here's the four things you need to do to, to make that a possibility. If you're willing to do them, then we can give it a shot. Um, and so TV felt as if like, oh, no, I could do that and make a living. Like I could do that and, and pay my mortgage and, and put shoes on these kids and food in their mouth. Whereas comics was always the long shot. It was mm -hmm. always the like, you know, for every Kirkman, there's, you know, a thousand guys who are just doing it because they love it. And there's no shame in that. But I couldn't at that point be that person. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so comics, comics for me remains the thing that I do because it's the most fun. And then I do because the barrier between me and an audience is gossamer thin. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm making a TV show, if I'm writing a movie, there's 400 people who at some point need to say this is fine in order for it to become the thing that it is, for it to reach an audience. But comics, there's like four people, mm -hmm. maybe. There's an artist, there's a letterer, there's an editor, there's a publisher. And half the time, the publisher doesn't even read this stuff. Yes. And so so the, the personal nature of it, the ability to tell a story that is not compromised in any way by anybody else, I think only exists in literature, only exists in novels and comics. And you have that. I mean, now you have a home where you've released a couple of books with a, a comicsology originals. But like, if you really wanted to, you're like, I have a story to tell. If you want to tell Adora in the distance, you could have just gone to Kickstarter and, and done that. And I feel like you have enough reach now that you could do what you wanted to do, write the story you wanted to do with the person you wanted to write it with or, or create it with and release it. Whereas if you're doing it for a living, like you have to make this book, you might be being told what to write and what to do. And it takes some of the fun out of it as well. Does you know, but I, I I'm also a big enough boy to realize that like yeah no there's always going to be compromise there's always mm -hmm. going to be you know a certain amount of like if this is where the money is and this is what the work has to be and then finding a way within that to be satisfied you know like I I didn't have any real overarching desire to write a Peter Parker story but like Marvel asked me it's like hey we're doing these one shots and we have this Peter Parker the Amazing Shutterbug it's like well what is it it's like well it's what if Peter Parker was never bitten by a bug. I was like, oh, okay, well, that's cool. You know, like I can find my way into telling a story there that that satisfies satisfies me as a creator, but also satisfies them mm -hmm. as a publisher. Like there's always a way to make that those two, you know, disparate poles meet, but it's not quite like, here's my idea. Mm -hmm. Here's what I want to say. And let's just go say it. Mm -hmm. it, it but there's also, like I said, this, if you didn't, if you had that shutter bug, story wasn't with something you wanted to write you could have said no but if yeah. you needed the, if you absolutely needed the paycheck to get your stuff done because you didn't have other work you were doing you would have had potentially said yes anyway just to pay the bills and that's the, oh, totally. the the thing about doing it kind of on the side like you're a tv writer and you know work on tv right now uh for your mo most of your stuff and then you have these different projects you can work off of the side that help pay the bills but aren't your sole income which is nice uh, yeah the greatest gift that any creative person can have is the ability to say no. Mm -hmm. 
you know, is the ability to, to, to just be able to say, that's not for me. I don't think I could do that well. I don't want to do that. I'm going to say no. And so not only does it give you a little, a little bit of uh, sort of confidence and, and self-awareness and self-esteem, but it actually makes you somewhat more desirable to other people who just kind of like the chase. <laughs> you know, like, oh, he yes. says no for this. Maybe we can get him to say yes for that or whatever it is. But to just know what you want to do and have the capacity to chase that thing is a, is a, is a liberty that I don't take lightly because not yeah. everybody has. You so you you obviously I mentioned Adora in the distance for those who are going to be listening to this. Uh, there's I'm holding it up right here so you can't actually see it, but uh, <laughs> Adora in the distance uh, is one of those ones. When I originally tried to get this, it was sold out, and then they had to make some more of them for you. Yeah, uh, we, because we, people like it. <laughs> it is my first ever sellout, and I feel pretty good about that. It, it's it's an excellent thing. It, it's an excellent book. I mean. Um, uh, Ariella, I can't say her. What, how do you see her last yeah. name? Do you know? Chris, Christentina. Okay, Christentina is excellent. The artwork in the, in this book, uh, and, and so if anybody hasn't read it, you can read it on Comicsology, mm -hmm. which is nice. But you also can pick it up. Dark Horse uh, has released it in trade paperback format as well, uh, which yeah. is amazing. I mean, technically, I mean, is it just called the trade paperback, or is it actually just a graphic novel? Because it's yeah. I mean, I think it's I think it's just a graphic novel. It's just an okay. OGN. <laughs> yeah. Um, because we didn't, we're not collecting anything. Yeah, this is <laughs> exactly. You're you're collecting uh, pages from a. That's they're not even it. actually pages because they were digital, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the uh, Comicsology originals is nice because I like to read. I like to physically, personally hold it and glance through things and look at it again in a different medium. Um, but I'm a big lay in bed at night iPad mm -hmm. on a holder, read it that way. So Comicsology obviously makes it easy for that. Um, wow. How did? Adora in this sense end up at Comixology. It's like, how did that happen? Um, it happened because, I mean, in the, and the book is, for those of you, of you out there who don't know, it is the, the, the long-term sort of comic book passion of my life. Like I had the idea for this um, a good 15 years ago, um, you know, and it's very much inspired by my experience raising a, a child who's on the autism spectrum. And so when my daughter was first diagnosed, She's now 20 and she was diagnosed at like two and a half. <laughs> you know, the the idea of writing about it um, started to form, but I had no idea what that form would take. I just knew that I didn't want it to be um, this sort of memoir. I didn't want it to be a, you know, the sad slash triumphant story of a parent raising a kid, you know, on the spectrum and the challenges and the triumphs and the heartbreaks and the whatever, because that made it a story about me. And I always felt that I was the least interesting person in this particular dynamic. She's the one with the mystery. She's the one with the story. And because I am the nerd that I am, that sort of manifested in a, you know, what if? Most stories are what ifs. But it's a what if story. But what if this is what's happening in her head when she can't communicate with us? What's going on in there? What's What adventures is she unwilling to leave to come and join us in the real world? What is, what's going on in her head was the the question. And so I just started kind of pulling it together and, you know, months would pass, years would pass and new ideas would, would kind of show up. And then I started pitching it around once I kind of knew what it was and nobody wanted to bite. You know, everybody was interested, but nobody wanted to bite. Um, you know, I pitched it to DC, I pitched it to Vertigo, I pitched it to Wildstorm, I pitched it to, to almost every publisher that I had any contact with. Mm -hmm. And everybody was like, this is beautiful. I don't think it's for us. 
And like, I respect that. I get it. You, you, you know, or you think, you know, what, what is best for your, for your publishing line. All good. Um, and then I almost kickstarted it once, um, at this point now, like 10 years ago, um, nine or 10 years ago. And the artist that I had was wonderful, but she kind of flaked on me. And so I, you know, had these character designs and a place to go with them. And so then it just kind of faded away. And then I got a call from, from Chip Mosier, who I had known, um, in various comics iterations, both as a journalist and as a creator. And he's like, well, I'm doing this thing at Comixology. We've got this deal that we think is better than the image deal. Is there anything that you love? Is there anything that you're passionate about? Is there anything that the, the great work that you've been wanting to do that you want to do with Comixology? And then I sent him the script, which had been written of Adora. And I was like, yeah, this is the one. And he's like, I love it. Let's do it. And it was, that was pretty much it. That was pretty much it. There wasn't a ton more negotiation. There wasn't a ton more back and forth. So he's, I said it to him, told him what it was, told him what it meant to me. He's like, all right, well, that's the thing we're going to do. And, Go and find an it. artist. <laughs> exactly. And then you ended up partnering up with uh, Ariella, and it turned out to be beautifully done. And, and, and I like how you did that, like the way that telling a story almost in the idea of it's from the point of, point of view of your daughter I mean, how, how does she take in this book now? I mean, I'm guessing now at 20 years old, she's read the book. Um, no, she's not there yet. Um, she may never get there yet. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, 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 uh, that is the, the sort of tragedy of the book is that I wrote it inspired by her and yeah. she'll never read it. Um, you know, she might flip through the pages, but yeah. won't get anything out of it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she, her favorite movie ever is Finding Nemo. And I think it's because of the color palette. I think yeah. she just likes the blues and the purples and all that stuff. So there's there's very specifically parts in this book that are all blues and purples that are all kind of awash with what feels like underwater. And it's like, yeah, all right, that that'll be for her. That's her little mm -hmm. part of the book. That's, that's amazing. It's it's it's. it's a I just love the whole idea behind it. My mom uh, is a paraprofessional in Connecticut and she works with mm -hmm. the, uh, students with special needs. And so every time I think of like, I was like, this would be, I think just being in relation with people with, uh, you know, uh, different needs and, and, and abilities as us, as, as I would consider, I'd say, I say, I hate to say normal human beings, but mm -hmm. the average human being is that I think she would love to read this, even though she's not into comic books. I got my dad, the Elvis uh, mm -hmm. graphic novel that came out uh, last year, year, a couple of years ago, was I think it won a Ringo Award because uh, he's a big Elvis fan. So I was like, oh, that would be perfect right. to give him because I, it's my way of saying, I love comic books. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> we forced this down your throat. No. And I said, so I got this and I I, I, I want to get her another copy. I want to keep this one obviously for myself, but I want to send, send a copy to my mom and be like, you just need to read this because I think you would get it more than even I get it just because of your your work with people who uh, you have, you have utter patience with the people you work with. And I, I respect yeah. that. I think that this would be a great thing for her to read. And so I'm actually kind of happy that there's something I could give my dad and my mom, my dad, like we gave it to him via zoom and literally like, cause I mailed it to him. He lives in Connecticut mm -hmm. a couple of hours away. And, and I think my mom, my dad, I go, dad, you read that book. He goes, I read it while we were on the zoom. <laughs> I go, that is the one downside to the medium of comic books and graphic novels is the fact that it can get expensive if you're very fast at, at, at absorbing the content. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. <laughs> so yeah, but... I mean, th that was always the hope, you know, was that I, I, I knew as a as a parent, and finding my way into that that entire society and community, mm -hmm. that there are more people who have experience with somebody who is, you know, neurally atypical. Um, 
than actually anybody had any sense of. And most people have some touch of that in their lives. Mm -hmm. If not personally, then there's a friend or a niece or a nephew or a cousin or an uncle or whatever who is somewhere on the spectrum. And everybody has a little bit of that experience. And so the audience, the market for this, purely like if you're going to be just purely mercenary about it, being like, no, there's people who would buy this book. If they know what it is, they would buy it because this is also part of their lives too. And, you know, and I was always very careful about like, I understand that there are, there are travelers in this space who, who occasionally, you know, uh, neurally typical writers writing about neurodivergent characters can be touchy. Mm-hmm. And so I was always trying my best to be very careful and respectful of that particular community and never, ever talking down to anybody and never, ever talking, you know, treating it as if it was a thing to be cured mm-hmm. was never um, the plan. And and it seems as if for better or worse, we, we hit the right um, we hit the right zone in that regard. And it's great because I feel like it's a it's a book it's young adult, but in the same sense, I, I really kind of hate that title, <laughs> calling it young adult because it's just like I feel like the majority of regular you mentioned pretty mature comic books at the beginning of the episode here, but 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 like your regular everyday typical Spider-Man story is a young adult story in a sense. If you think about it, it's not like yeah. superly overly graphic and it's not like, you know, doesn't, doesn't deal with a lot of big, big people things. So like a young adult thing is kind of funny to me that this book, if you'd ever told me it was a young adult graphic novel, I might've just been like, cool, this is a great book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, most, most content in the world yes. is not overwhelmingly mature. Like Casablanca, Yes. is not a mature watch like there's no sex there's hardly any violence there's no profanity like it is just a story it's just narrative and most narrative is all ages mm-hmm. um we just have found ways to slice that probably to help sell it easier but like yeah sure there's stuff on either spectrum yes but by and large most of everything is for everyone and so I hope it doesn't turn people off that it's a YA book and you just <laughs> remove that from it. But I think that one of the greatest, my favorite horror novels over the past, or, you know, books, books over the past couple of years was A Clown in a Cornfield by Adam Caesar. And that book is technically considered a young adult horror book. And it's like, it's on that borderline of like, I can understand why it's like that because it's fairly easy to read and all that stuff. But it's like, they're about to make a movie out of this thing. And it's definitely not going to be like, no scenes with blood or something like that. Like it's going to be pretty mature and it's a weird yeah. kind of crossover. The fact that that's called the young adult. He's like every once in a while, he, he sees, he goes to like a Barnes and Noble and there's like three copies of his book. He'll grab one <laughs> of them out of the young adult thing and just bring it to the horror section and put it in the horror section so people can stumble upon it. But yeah, it's like, yeah, because it is true. I mean, it's not like this says young adult right across the top of it. So you could put this anywhere. And actually my LCS here in, uh, in, in Maine, he, Galactic Comics, he had actually never even heard about it. Uh, mainly, I mainly, I don't, he's, the distribution, I can't even get my wrap my head around it trying to order <laughs> books. It confuses me. And so when I said, hey, man, I really want this book. Could you see if you can find it? He couldn't. It was sold out. And then a couple months later, he was like, oh, I could find it. And so he grabbed it. He ended up buying two or three copies for the shop because he liked the, the way that and I, I, he listens to me quite often, too. So he's like, I'm like, oh, crap, don't do that. Because if no one buys it, that seems like it's my responsibility. <laughs> you um, did it. But like, so he had it and he actually has sold a couple. So uh, I'm pretty excited about that. And we actually have a book club 
a graphic novel club that we do at the shop that I would have been recommended. I mean, it's like 15,000 books we have on a list to read. Uh, but I thought this would be a great one to read if we wanted to invite oh. uh, families. Like instead of like a lot of times we're reading like something's killing the children, which obviously mm-hmm. wouldn't invite, invite a young <laughs> kid to. But this I could understand like being a teenager or something like that, inviting them and having that uh, over there. But that was released at Comixology. Not to switch gears completely, but then you ended up with Census. Is that because of the, the because of this book that you ended up going over to Census, or did that? Uh, it, it was it was my experience with with Adora was rosy enough and wonderful enough that, and, and I think both ways that Chip said, "What else you got? What else you mm-hmm. want to do?" And I was like, "Oh well, I got this other thing that I you know I've always kind of liked." He's like, "What is it?" And I pitch it to him. It's like, "All right, that's cool." That seems to be the way. You know, comicsology. You know, worked was oh, that's cool. Let's do that then. You know, and I think is that what that, the contracts say? Yeah, let's do just that. One page. That's let's just do it, and then you you yeah. sign it. And that's it. <laughs> that's cool. We'll do it, right? Yeah. Um, and it was. I mean, it's a different speed for sure yeah. than it is. It's not. It's not YA, except no. that it's totally YA. You know, <laughs> like it's a it's a sitcom. You know, yeah. it's a it's a what what's the the weird predicament you're going to put your protagonist in every week. And it was, you know, also an idea that that was long gestating, inspired by my growing up in New York. You know, I was born in the Bronx and grew up on Long Island. And my first, the first 20 professional years of my life were spent in Manhattan. And so that feeling of being able to walk down those streets and there's a thousand million doors everywhere you go. So what's behind those doors? I remember being in the middle of Manhattan, nowhere in any sight anywhere of the water. And we're mm-hmm. passing by this, this like just door that had the most immaculate stenciling on it that just said mm-hmm. the water club. I was like, what the hell is the water club? And why <laughs> is it so far from the water? And why does it look like it's some like, you know, the, the secret hideout for the Society of Extraordinary Gentlemen or something like that? Like, why does it look, <laughs> you know, arcane? And then it was like, I bet you there's a ton of doors like that here that nobody knocks on. But what if it was somebody's job to do that? Um, and I, I'm pretty sure that we probably had just gone through a census or something. And I remember that in my head. And uh, and it was a relatively simple pitch. And, you know, finding Sebastian Perez, who I just found on Twitter, like oh. I just saw his artwork just pop up. It's like, dude, do you want to do a comic book? Yeah, I'm so glad you did, too, because like <laughs> I slept on this person, too. Like I just had a long conversation with the comic book store owner in my town about Sebastian and how I how did I miss this this artist like I could go hours on his Instagram like I have some some uh some comic book tattoos and I'm like mm-hmm. how many of these can I get on my arm because this is amazing <laughs> and then I stumbled on the fact that he actually has done things for like uh, the We Ride Titans book I read I, I mentioned earlier from Trace Dean he mm-hmm. did the art on that one he's doing art on some newer things uh that came out recently too and I was just like a uh, uh, books over at Mad Cave and I'm just like this person has been making comic books and I just, how did I just completely forget about this? And then when Comixology sent over the census uh, issues for me to read too, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my God, this, this guy is everywhere. <laughs> and you yeah. obviously co-wrote that with Adam Freeman too, right? I did, yeah. I mean, and, and I've known Adam since I was 11 years old. Um, we went to elementary school together and okay. high school together. And, you know, we were in a dumbass rock band in, in a, just after college together. And we started writing comic books together. And uh, and so this was an idea that we had come up with together. And and I, I love writing with Adam when I get the chance to do it. And Adam's funnier than I am, you know. And, uh, and so when we were going to do a comedy, it's like, well, of course. Like, you, you, need, you need that speed as well. And that's why Sebastian was also so necessary. Yes. 
because you needed somebody who could not just draw the fantastic, but who could get just the the acting on the faces. Like if you can't get, you know, if you can't convey character, it's impossible to do, really do comedy and make it land. Then it becomes mm -hmm. like a short story you're reading as opposed to a comic book you're ingesting. And Sebastian got every dumb look we wanted on Liam's face. He got every ridiculous sort of, you know, having tea with Cthulhu, you know, <laughs> the absurdity of all that, like, he, uh, he he killed it. He nailed it. And if for anybody who was listening to this who doesn't realize, Liam, so the solicitation for at least uh, issue one is uh, Liam gets his first real job counting demons for the underworld census. Uh, but can he keep keep his job, his life? Most importantly, can he keep his pants? Find out now. And so <laughs> it's that's a great solicitation. First of all, it fits Poe perfectly. But I think when I was reading this too, I think it was during like, I can remember a lady coming to my door it with a mask on during the pandemic doing the census recently mm -hmm. and i was just thinking to myself i'm like how annoyed how much she might have been annoyed with knocking on people's doors just because it seems like a very tedious and probably people don't want to talk to her and stuff like that and how i sat in the inside being like i don't want to talk to this person and so on <laughs> and so forth let alone the underworld <laughs> <laughs> like, I just can't imagine if she's knocking on the door, not ex knowing what to expect and not knowing what could happen potentially does see something that you would, you would laugh about. And so I could totally see it as a sitcom, like an actual like adaptation to TV, because I think it would be hilarious to watch uh, on, a, on a regular basis on whatever streaming platform. Yeah. No, it's, it's funny. Like ev everything that I do in TV is, you know, it's very like serialized and it's yeah. a little deep and intense and then here's just a fucking sitcom i think yes. it's what i've ever come up with which is like yeah this is just like half an hour yeah we'll just breeze in we'll do some weird supernatural shit we'll breeze out you know nobody's actually going to die until they actually do um <laughs> but it's never it's never very heavy like and i sort of like that i appreciated the let's let's do a book that doesn't sound like it's carrying the weight of the world <laughs> but still being able to talk about stuff you know i mean there's there's a couple passages as we get into issues three and four you know, where we we're chasing ghosts in Manhattan, you know, and so what does that mean? Who's, you know, who's not alive in Manhattan anymore? What, where are these ghosts from? You know, and what, you know, and then having being able to have a larger conversation about like, well, what does, what do we choose to forget? You know, as, as people, as society, as a country, you know, what and who, which stories do we not want to remember? Mm -hmm. you know? And it's, it's gotten important to me in the last, you know, 10 years or so. Even when you're doing like dumb shit, even when you're doing like the silliest stuff, it's just, can there be a thing to say mm. in there? You know, like one of the reasons why I was very excited to do that Peter Parker story was because I wanted to talk about the, the rage that comes when it seems like you're not living the life you're supposed to live, you know, and it doesn't have to be, you know, I don't have to beat anybody's head over it, but I thought that that was like the crux of it is the Peter Parker feels like he should be doing more and isn't. And then what happens when that frustration gives way, like it's very Yoda. And that frustration gives way to anger. And then who preys on that anger of the useless, of the unfulfilled? And to have Uncle Ben be the 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 family that survives as opposed to Aunt May, to mm -hmm. be able to sit Peter down and tell him, it's like, hey man, I see where this is going. I know what's going to happen. And I can't let you be this guy anymore. You know, like, yeah, it's a page in a Spider-Man. Yes. But it, it was it was an important page for me to have in there. Well, I'm just glad you do do that as well because of the fact that I don't think people realize that you can tell. I always, I don't know why I always use the terminology that like people laugh and tell jokes at a funeral 
even though it's a very solemn and sad moment. There's still people who are laughing. There's someone who farted. There's something that happens at the funeral that does that is lighthearted enough to realize that yes, we're here for a somber moment, but it, there can be some comedy in there. And I almost relate that to some of the Marvel movies where there's like serious things happening, but someone's cracking a joke. And the same thing with a comedy sitcom where you're trying to say, I want to say something real. There's no like rules that you can't no. make it more, more have some sort of wider meaning or bigger meaning than just a comedy. And, and I'm glad some people like yourself are starting to put that into place and, and actually forming things around. You know, I've read countless of comic books to talk to people on here about how they're using a medium like comic books to say something bigger, uh, although they're saying a joke or, or doing some sort of meaningless thing in the comic book itself. Yeah, you know, and it's it's a thing that I, I'm not gonna say I came around to it by accident, mm. but you know, discovering, especially listening to like George Lucas talk about Star Wars, you know, which is my, it's the source, it's the mother well from everything from which all springs, right? Star Wars is the first movie I ever saw. It's my first science fiction. It's it's the reason why I do all the things I do is because I saw Star Wars at six. <laughs> and for him, Star Wars is a story about rebellion. It's a story about, you know, a, a giant, it's a Vietnam allegory for him, you know, and, and never more so than when you get to you return the Jedi, but it's the giant galactic emperor empire mm-hmm. is the United States, you know, and yes. the, re- the rebels who are kind of fighting against it are everybody who's ever fought against that kind of ter- tyranny, you know, and like, it's deeply political for him. You know, and whether or not we as an audience choose to to kind of understand it, it's all there. You know, we might have been too young to see it. We might now not want to see it, mm-hmm. but it's always been political. It's always been about, you know, the 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 rebel upstarts fighting against the giant, you know, all consuming empire. And yeah, America was the upstarts once and now we've become <laughs> what we beheld. And so what does that mean? And so realizing that, it's given me a little bit of solace to be like, well, yeah, no, you can make the dumbest popcorn thing in the world, but it can still be about something. Like yeah, something Thor big, Ragnarok yeah. can be the silliest movie ever, but it's also about refugees. Mm-hmm. It's also about people who don't have a home, you know. And what is what is what does home mean? Home is not a place; it's a people. people. Like that is a deeply allegorical political film mm-hmm. that is also crazy funny, you know, and yes. actually like deeply emotional. You can yes. do that. You can do all of it. It's not, you don't have to pick a lane and stay in it. it. You know, obviously you don't want to go all over the place, but like there is a way to thought, thoughtfully put it together to the point where multiple different avenues can be achieved by one piece of mm-hmm. a medium. And that's, that's like I said, that's not to get too deep in this, but that's what sense this <laughs> is in my opinion. And in that sense, a sense of the book itself is, is that, and your partnership with Adam is great. Obviously your names are on a lot of things together as well as Sebastian's artwork's amazing. And the letterer on on both Adora and Comics, yeah. uh, and Bernardo uh, Bryce. Bernardo, yeah, is uh, on both of those as well, uh, which is amazing too. But I wanted to mention something really quickly before I forget about Census, and you mentioned New York City and stuff. I was just listening to your uh, recent Fat Man, uh, Black Man Beyond mm-hmm. episode, and you talked about obviously people who had drawn like Luke Cage and things like that had never actually been <laughs> been to there. Well, we mentioned it because he, because uh, this guy recently had a guy named Travis Gibb on, who's a writer, uh, has a book coming out for Scout, who had is based it in Rochester, New Hampshire, a couple hours from where I live here in Maine. Mm-hmm. And I said, what's great about it is that it's based in Rochester, New Hampshire, and the streets are basically 
you know, Rochester, New Hampshire, but he knows those streets. He's been yeah. there. <laughs> and I said, that's funny how I said, so I was like, just listening to this episode before I started <laughs> talking to you about them talking about that on the podcast about there's a, you can tell someone's never been there. When you look at it, you go, that's supposed to be Harlem, but I don't think that really looks like Not that. quite. That looks a lot oh. like Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like a Stephen King movie, right? That's supposed yep. to be Maine, but that looks a lot like Vancouver. <laughs> yeah. I mean, hell, when, when I was working on Castle Rock, Yes. You know, we we did not shoot in Maine because you just you, you couldn't get it done. So nope. you shot in Orange, Massachusetts. We're like, well, it, I feel like Close. it kind of looks like at one Maine-ish. point they were the same. At one point they were the same state, right? It counts. Yeah, it's, it's all the same region of the world. It's, um, it's all got we, the same the, the same weather beaten clapboard on the side of the houses. Like, I I get it. There's a whole article someone wrote for the local newspaper or wrote local like uh, TV pay- web page or whatever about um, how Maine State of Maine needs to start having TV tax or TV or movie tax incentives, tax breaks for people to come and film in Maine because it would be perfect for people to do that. And one of the biggest things was that Stephen King has had very little, if any, actual scenes shot in Maine, even though <laughs> most of his stories are, are based in Maine. And, and we take a lot of pride in the fact that he's from Maine. But like, yeah, it's just kind of funny how yeah. it, I mean, I'm glad someone to- wrote... Go ahead. If, if I had to guess, I'd say it's because the the weather in Maine yes. is great for a little bit, yes, and then becomes impossible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I loved. I mean, I mean you obviously you, know, you talked on, on the podcast, uh, uh, Fat Man Beyond, about The Last of Us and the fact that uh, was it episode one where they said t- ten miles or twenty miles west of Boston, and I'm like, I used to live twenty miles west of Boston, and it's not what I, it's not what I look like. No, <laughs> there's no. mountains and a stream and stuff like I'm like 20 miles worth of bar. I lived in Lowell. That was a pretty like they did not look mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been to a bunch of Worcesters and Gloucesters yes. and all of those things. They don't look like anything like this. <laughs> <laughs> I just love how it just got roasted online about all these people from New England and Massachusetts going. That's not what it looks like. I think you guys are a little crazy. But yeah, nice try. They had to yeah they had to walk <laughs> that far. It had to be written the writing. But the show is amazing, and I'm excited for for the future of the show, uh, particularly. Um, how it ends up and it goes into season two. But mm-hmm. Census is amazing. It's available in Comixology uh, as well. Do is there? I don't know how the how does that deal with Comixology and Dark Horse working? Is that eventually going to get a trade paperback? It will. Or is that it will? It will. It, okay. uh, the, the the last I heard was that it's a early twenty twenty four okay release to give Comixology you know time to squeeze every last drop out of the digital uh, stone that they can. And then mm-hmm. much like Adora, I think Adora was a slightly faster um interim but actually no, it was like a year it was actually yeah. a year between the digital pub and then the print pub and so i think it's about the same for uh for for census and it's great because i mean like i said i like to read digitally a lot but i also am a, a completionist to the point where i want a lot of physical copies and a lot of mm-hmm. times I'll, I'll i'm a floppy kind of guy i like the floppy comic books and so <laughs> like even for the graphic novel club that i'm in where we read it a lot of times i have issues one through five but I still nice. go to the shop and buy the trade <laughs> so that I have the actual trade. And some of them, like, I, we just read Something's Killing the Children, and I'm not cracking open the CGC case <laughs> to read issue one. <laughs> I have to buy the trade. But um, your main job is being working in TV and movies, mainly TV, but you just did a short film. Do you mind just yes. chatting a little bit about uh, Splinter a little bit? Or? No, not at all. I'm uh, Splinter was uh, the fulfillment of a promise that I made to myself. That uh, that when I was like 45 years old, I said, by the time I turn 50, I want to have written and directed a movie. The time I was like, feature film, let's go, shoot the one. Didn't end up being a A trilogy, a trilogy. Let's just do it all. Um, And then we 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 started physical production. We start like our first shot was a week after my 50th birthday. 
COVID found a way that screw everything up. Um, but uh, and it was it was inspired by uh, the Twilight Zone. It was inspired by that kind of um, the the moral quandary that was always at the center of every episode of the Twilight Zone. Like what what would you do mm-hmm. is the is the is the question that each episode is asking. And Twilight Zone always had an episode on a plane, and they always had episodes with creepy ass children. And so I figured I would synthesize the two <laughs> and and posit that there's a plane that never lands that only has one passenger. Um, and if that passenger ever sets foot on the ground, he's a splinter in the world. Like rage, chaos, violence um, ensues. And so this is his prison that he's got to live in for the entirety of his life. And then what happens when that plane crashes um, is the crux of the thing. And and we went on Kickstarter and and raised way more money than I thought we would raise. <laughs> you know, up and up until the morning that we turned it live. I remember telling Kevin, I was like, man, I don't know. I feel like I'm going to have to assume an identity at the end of this. Mm-hmm. Drop a giant wad in the bucket to hump us over the finish line on day 30. And it was like, man, you just, you don't understand. Like, you don't know mm-hmm. the depth of this audience. We've, we've never asked them for anything. We've never asked them for a dime. And now they have an opportunity to, to give something back to the one of us who's asking for something. Yes. <laughs> it was like, I ask for enough shit. I ask for, yes. you know, the, the reboot tours i ask for this i ask to buy my merch i ask all of that stuff you've never asked them for anything and so now is the time that they get to they get to give back mm-hmm. and we made our nut in the first 12 hours yes we, we made what we were looking for in 12 hours and by the time we 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 ended the campaign we had tripled um what we were looking for and needed every fucking dime yes exactly <laughs> so say at the end of it you end up probably underestimating how much money you needed to make yeah. the movie yeah <laughs> You know, I mean, luckily, luckily, the the, the audience came out in spades. But yeah. it was a, it, it was an expensive shoot, which also Kevin would never let me live down. It's like you know, I made Clerks for twenty four thousand yes. dollars, and that was a whole ass movie. But that and was Clerks. Spent, I'm, just, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. It's like <laughs> you spent how much on a short? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah but I got to shoot in a plane. I don't yes. have any. I don't have any friends who have planes. You know, guy who had a convenience store. <laughs> You're not you're not a stewardess in an airplane that you just get to happen. Hey guys, we're gonna shoot a film while we're flying here. So don't yeah, worry. It's, it's all it. good. It's all good. I got the keys to the hangar. We're just gonna dip in after hours. We'll be out before American needs this plane. We'll just hang a sheet over the entire thing so people think we're in 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 in, in sky. You know, don't worry. About yeah, it's all good. It's all good. It's, uh, it's but fine. I laugh on that same uh, episode of Travis Gibb mentioned that he tried to go into the TV or TV and movie industry and realized that he goes, I don't know what kind of credit cards Kevin Smith had, but I couldn't get those credit cards. <laughs> Kevin no. Smith special credit cards to make cards. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's Splinter. So you're all, is it all, you wrapped everything and you're now. It's done. We're, we're, we're playing festivals. We just finished playing the Pan-African Film Festival in LA. We, uh, we have some pretty good news that I can't talk about just yet um, about another film festival. We're going to be playing it uh, in, in, in the spring. We're definitely bringing it to Comic-Con in the summer. Um, but yeah, I, I can't wait to share it. And I, and I feel bad. I consistently feel bad that the Kickstarter backers have not gotten to see it yet. Um, and it's because the fe- festival nonsense. Yeah. It's like they want to have, they want it to not have been exposed to the wideness of the mm-hmm. world yet. They want to have some sense that, you know, if you wanted to see this movie, here's the only way you could see this movie. Mm-hmm. And so sending it to, you know, 4,000 uh, Kickstarter backers is, is a little con- contrary to that uh, yeah. impulse. 
But I can't wait. I can't wait for the people who, who helped make this possible to see what they made possible. And you're showing it. So people out there who are Kickstarter backers know that there is something, whereas like the number of times yeah. people have backed Kickstarters where nothing has been seen of it, you don't even know if it's actually been made. There's, yeah, you can, we, we can at least rest the knowing that there's something out there. <laughs> we did the thing. It's all done. I swear to God. <laughs> it's there. Don't worry. It has to be yeah. flown. That's Absolutely. what you should do. You should do a uh, screening for some of these people on a plane. There you go. Well, big screen in the beginning part of it there you go just yeah or just put them all on a plane and pipe it into the phones the way you now watch movies on a plane anyway in a hangar don't pay for the, hangar. The, don't fly it that's a waste of gas and waste yeah come on guys <laughs> but so so splinter is, is there now the creation and the, the completion of this is this like fueled the want for more or is this like you did it now and you're ready to just see what happens in the future uh if you would asked me like on day three of production, I'd have been like, I don't want to ever do this again. This is hard. And I don't know how people do this on a, on a bigger scale. Like yeah. I, in the middle of that, I was like, how do you make a James Bond movie? Yeah. How do you do this for nine months? Yeah. Like it's exhausting being here for three days and it's just us knuckleheads in this set. Can you imagine like being helicopters and drone shots and you got to blow up this train. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't manage to, work my way around mentally yeah what that's like but you know on the other side of it i think it's i i, I don't ever want to pretend like i understand what childbirth is like but what i do understand is that pain is a temporary sensation otherwise mm -hmm. there would only ever be only children yes you know you have to be able to forget how bad it was mm -hmm. to move up to how to and enjoy and embrace how great it can be and so I have to think that you forget how bad the pain of production is because people make more than one movie, mm -hmm. you know, because they love it, because there's something about it that continues to, to sort of fuel that thing. And I remember, and I, and I couldn't quite put it to words until I heard this, this uh, interview with Austin Butler talking about being in his first Quentin Tarantino movie because he's in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. And he said, like, I'm on set this one day and, you know, we shoot our scene and Quentin's like, you know what? I think we got it, everybody. But you know what? We're going to do one more. You know why? And the entire cast and crew says, like, with one voice, because we fucking love making movies. Yes. You know? And so yes. that feeling of, like, look what we're getting to do, you guys. We're getting to make a fucking movie. Yes. Um, You're lucky enough to do that. Like, I have a friend who is, uh, or an acquaintance from the podcast who is working on uh, funding on Kickstarter, his first short film. Mm -hmm. uh, he's the one that did uh, all the recuts of the um, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi show. Oh, so yeah. He did, yeah, he did the recuts of it and made it into a two-hour movie. He's also now doing the Kickstarter thing, and it's like one of those things that's just so hard to get people to back you, and then you have to do it. But like, now that you've done it, and once we see it all, I think more, yeah. most people are going to be like, okay, he, can do, he knows what he's doing. Well, we've seen you things know. you've worked on, so it's not like we don't want a taste of what you get to do. It, it is, but it's also like uh, Michael Jordan was not a great baseball player. <laughs> <laughs> like sometimes those are two disciplines that don't necessarily cross over. Crossover, yeah, exactly. Um, but I was I was very glad uh, to be able to have a, a crew that knew exactly what they were doing, to the cast who came to play, you know, and to have people who believed and mm -hmm. and donated time and and money and effort and talent to uh, to make a dumb kid's dream come true, and so. I won't get that the next time. Next yes. time, it's just got to be good. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and and so for people who don't know, how long is a short film? You know, how, how long is the, the runtime? Our runtime is, with credits, uh, 16 minutes. 
Okay, perfect. Um, so yeah, yeah, it was it was it, my uh, my producer like kept trying to make it shorter simply because she knew she, as, as going to film festivals, they like shorts to be short. And even Kevin said a short can always be shorter. Like there's 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 you don't have to overstay your welcome. Like get in, tell your story, get out. Like a short is a joke. It's mm -hmm. set up and it's punchline. And if you're doing more than either of those things, you're kind of overstaying your welcome. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've, I've sort of taken that to heart of the, yeah, no, a short can always be shorter. You know, you're not telling a three act structure, you're telling set up punchline. And that's perfect. I honestly think that I'm, as you, as you have talked about you and Kevin, so I'm, I'm much more tentative to 16 minutes than I am three and a half hours of a movie. So <laughs> I'd rather watch a bunch of 16 minute movies than a three and a half. When I see three and a half hours, when I'm going through the internet and looking at movies, I'm like, oh God, why do I have to watch this thing? Yeah. I see an hour and, and a half. I'm, I'm like, gonna. Uh -huh. yes. It's like, I'm well, going like, to. Babylon was like that. I'm like, I really need to watch this movie, but it's three hours and 10 minutes. I don't know if I want to watch that much. And I'm so glad I did because it was just at the end of it. I just was like, I don't, I'm what the hell did I just watch? And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> and well, that's, that's what art is supposed to do. right? It challenges yes. you just enough. <laughs> yes, exactly. So you have that, obviously that's on the horizon. You got this. <laughs> I love, and I've said this to a couple people on the podcast before, which is if you can tell me everything that you're doing, you're, you don't have anything on the horizon because if you're going to say everything, that means there isn't that one thing you can't say. And so obviously we all know you always have something you're working on that, that uh, you can't talk about. So there is things coming out though. We should look at with your name on it. Correctly. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not entirely sure when um, Batman Cape Crusader is going to be a thing people can watch. I know they're still making Batman Cape mm -hmm. Crusader. Um, so, uh, which is the, the, the Bruce Tim and Brubaker animated follow-up. Mm -hmm to Bruce Timm's, you know, Batman, the animated yep. series. Um, and so I wrote an episode of that, which was so much fun. Uh, there's a show that I'm working on now with Kevin, who he has not said what it was, but I can say at the very least that much mm. that Kevin Smith and I are, are doing a TV show together, um, which is going gangbusters. It's been so that's much awesome. fun. Um, and then there's some other stuff that's in the can that's waiting for the people to decide they want to tell other people what it is. Um, there's going to be more work done on that untitled World War II set um, Captain America Black Panther game that I worked on a few years ago um, and have been working on ever since because games apparently take forever to forever. make. <laughs> um, and so there's even there's even more work to be done on that. And I'm not entirely sure what a release date is. I'm not sure when they're going to say what the title is. All I can say is it's so damn fun yeah, and, awesome. and, and a crazy weird sort of place to find myself in, which is... I love video games, have loved them for longer than I've loved comics. And so for this to be my debut is fucking Captain America and Black Panther get to punch each other and Nazis. That sounds like a win. I want to play it right now. Let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, so that's awesome. So one last thing before we go, any uh, thing we should be looking forward to? Like, what, what's your any Oscar picks you got going here that you want to like shred out there a little bit? You know, I I uh, I feel as if, and I, and I know this is probably, uh, you know, it, it's not going on a limb to say, I feel like Kihu Kwan is going to win mm -hmm. um, Best Supporting Actor. Because it, the, the thing that having, having covered the Oscars for 20 years as a journalist, it is abundantly clear to me that it is never about what the best movie is. It's about mm -hmm. what the what the best narrative around mm -hmm. the movie is. You know, and I don't think that Everything Everywhere All at Once is going to win Best Picture. 
despite the fact that I love it to death. Yes. I don't think Michelle Yeoh is going to win Best Actress, even though she 100% should. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the narrative around Ki-Hu Kwan is strong enough that it will that will be the one. If it's going to win one of those, you know, four top awards, mm-hmm. it's probably going to be that one, you know. And I think Jamie Lee Curtis also has a pretty decent shot at Best Supporting Actress. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm pulling so fucking hard for that movie. And have been <laughs> since like February, I saw it a year ago. Yes. Um, because I, just, I, I love it to death. It's everything everywhere all at once. Yeah. What else can you say? <laughs> can't say anything else. I love it. I'm <laughs> looking forward to it. I don't know why. This year was my year of actually purposely trying to watch Oscar films like films that could be put up for oscars because i just feel like in the past i've always like watched that what's popular and and then i get to the oscars i'm like i wonder who's up for an oscar and i'm always like okay i've seen one of these movies right (laughs) and so we should probably get into it so this year i actually (laughs) went in there i was like okay and then like i see oscar nods and i'm like okay i've seen 90 percent of them i'm actually pretty good this year i got this i got this like i don't know who's gonna win what but like i can tell you that if they win i can be like i've seen that i I can know what that is yeah yeah but it's, so, it's always about it's not like popularity contest it's more like what does hollywood want us to think they think about themselves mm-hmm. you know and then what what story can everybody kind of rally around like brendan Fraser's story is a great story mm-hmm. like the whale i haven't seen the whale i don't really have a desire to see the whale um, I think it's getting dinged a bit for most of what it is, which yeah. is yeah, made a movie about a fat guy. There's no fat people making a movie. And yeah. the fat suit and all that is a little bit, you know, not great. But everybody loves Brendan Fraser. Like mm-hmm. everybody loves that guy. They love his path and they love his journey. And then he found his way back to doing great work at this period in his life. That's the narrative that I think that voters can get behind and be like, well, the movie, whatever. That guy, though. Okay. And that's the way the world turns. Indeed. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. So you've got, I would, we just to recap, recap here, Adora in the Distance, available comicsology and trade format or graphic mm-hmm. novel format at uh, Dark Horse. Uh, you can yep. get it where books are sold as well as you can get it at your local comic book shop. If they don't have it, let them know because they can order it uh, and get it in on their next order for comic books as well as Census on comicsology. Yep. And if you don't, if you have an Amazon Prime account, I believe you get that to read Comicsology for nothing, right? Is that true? Yeah, it's like a Kindle Amazon yeah. Joint Forces Task Force thing where they basically give you everything for free. So, so if you don't, <laughs> if you're one of the few people in the world who don't have Amazon Prime, then then <laughs> you but if you do have Amazon Prime, you should definitely read it. Yeah. And or then wait for that to come out. It's also yes. free. Okay, there you go. And then uh, get census on Dark Horse when that comes out in a graphic novel format as well, a trade format as well. And be on the lookout for Splinter because I'm excited as most people who are fans of Marks to see this as well. You're on Instagram, right? Have yes. You been, have you been in the crazy world of Twitter? I have abandoned Twitter. I, I I check in every now and again when somebody sends me a link to look at, but I don't I don't need that much in my life anymore, and I'm better for it. <laughs> but it's at Mark Renardin on Twitter as well. And obviously, when are you guys going to do another Fat Man Beyond? When's Kevin going to be back? Uh, Kevin, you know, nursing nursing a, a, a fledgling movie theater is an all encompassing task, <laughs> and so you know, I think that that. You know, he feels like once it's on its own two feet, once it yep. doesn't require the presence of uh, of Kevin Smith to help sell everything, um, he might go back to being a bit more bi-coastal. Um, but I don't know when that is. I don't know when his uh, threshold of success is. But uh, but I you know I'm I'm going back east 
for uh for the Ides of March, March yeah. um, which is you know as the name would suggest, um, the starting the fifteenth of March. I'm going to show a couple of movies, talk about why they meet stuff to me, and probably tack on a Fat Man Beyond mm-hmm. while I'm there. Um, and uh, and I also might bring a, a little movie with me. So oh, if you were if you were if you were on the fence about going to see any of these things, then I don't know. Maybe show just up. saying. Maybe show up. Did anybody uh, tell Kevin it was hard to run a movie theater? You know, I'm sure they did, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm sure because he listens to people all the time. So yeah. I honestly, it's empowered. It's thought made me think to the point where I'm like listening to you guys come have conversations uh, about like showing Iron Man and doing things like that. And I was just like, it makes me want to do that in this area. And then I realized that I was like, yeah, but I don't have the money to spend on something like this right now. Yeah, like it's 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 the like rich nerd's dream <laughs> yes. to like buy your own movie theater and then program whatever you want. <laughs> you want I'm just assuming that there's enough people who are nerds like myself who would want to see the movies that I want to put on. You buy yeah. that, and I'm gonna end up having to put on all the movies that I don't want to see, but people will buy tickets too. <laughs> yeah, not not everybody gets to be Quentin Tarantino and the new Beverly, and just you know what? I'm a program whatever the fuck oh, I, I want. want. If you're you're lucky, you might cross over with me, and if not, well, it's seven brides for seven brothers for three days, you guys. Yes. Good luck. <laughs> but in the meantime, are you gonna be doing some more uh, Black Man Beyonds, or is it just gonna be static over there at the uh, Fat Man Beyond Studios? <laughs> um, you know, it's 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 always a matter of like I, I think we'll 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 get into it a bit more. The winter is always a dark yep. era. Like once yep. you get past your avatars, and then you're a bunch of Oscar movies, which we you know don't really talk about. Now we're cresting back into like, oh, all right, I got Ant Man to talk about, which I still have to talk about. Um, we're gonna get to Creed three. We're gonna get to to John Wick four, yeah. and start getting into into the craziness of the summer movie season. So hopefully we'll have Kev back for that. But if not, then I'll I'll definitely hop on the mic and fill the void. We got uh, the Mandalorian too coming up season three, right? Got Mando coming up. I'm gonna talk about the finale of of Last of Us pretty yes. soon. There's stuff happening. Yes, Ted Lasso is coming back. Oh gosh, March fifteenth. I can't. I, oh. I, I I literally have that like on my my wife and I's calendar. There's just like doctor's appointments and things like that. That's on there. <laughs> yeah, Ted Lasso. Back. Ted Lasso. And she was like sitting next to me. I think when I found it on the when they posted it online on the couch, and it just like obviously you know it like, goes ping. Let's her know there's a uh, calendar thing, and she's like, <laughs> oh my god. I'm like, see, that's how I was gonna tell you that it's coming back or they've it announced the season because uh, they did like they were like, oh spring, and I'm like, I hate when they do that. I spring to me, it's not that. <laughs> And it's not even technically spring, is it? No, it's still winter. Yeah. So, well, in Maine here, it's winter till June, so it's fine. We're, we're <laughs> it's always winter. Yes. So yeah. obviously, go on Twitter or sorry, Instagram, and follow at Mark Bernardin. Yes. Look for his name. Search it on Google. Find all the great things about him. And, and the then, reason I wanted to have you on here today, Mark, just to let you know, yes. I wanted to talk Adora the Distance. I want to talk Census, and I want to talk Splinter because you can't say anything bad about those. Well. People can. If anybody, if anybody has listened to Fat Man Beyond, Mark technically ten, tendency have have the tendency to talk bad about something. I I I never talk negatively. I no. talk critically. Critically, I should say. Sorry, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard for you to, to to promote your own products and talk critically about it. So this oh, is an opportunity for. Me, I will always tell you the shots critically. that I didn't get in Splinter. That's all I ever see when I watch. Like, oh yes. man, I wish we had that shot. Oh, oh damn, man. I wish we had that thing. It would have been a feature film, though. I know, would have been. But now it's a short. And it yes, is what it exactly. Is. 
So <laughs> check it out. And like I said, Splinter will be around. And I'm guessing at some point people will be able to buy it via download and all that stuff to at some point, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, you know, I I, I don't know. I mean, I'm for sure we're going to send that out to Kickstarter backers and they're yeah. going to get exactly what they paid for. Um, I don't know after that. I don't know mm-hmm. if it'll be a thing we charge for. I don't know if it's a thing we just put up for free because how much more money do I need? How much more can right. I ask for people from it? Like now it becomes a universal good. Just put yeah. it out into the world. If people want to watch it, they can watch it. Um, but I haven't, I haven't crossed that particular bridge yet um, or burned it yet either way. Um, <laughs> but we'll figure it out. Um, buy, buy Mark's comic books and you get to watch it for free. There you there go. You go. <laughs> it's incentive now. <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on, chatting and talking and, and and talking about your stuff. Keep up the great work. We're big fans over here and, and we'll always look for the new thing and the next big thing for you uh, and, and keep it up and all the things behind the scenes that you work on too that you know, you're in the producer's room or whatever. Yeah. Uh, keep that up and keep up the hard work. Oh, thanks, man. This has been fun. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had a blast. So again, thank you at Mark Bernard on, on Instagram and then obviously look for his stuff on Comixology. Just type in Mark Bernard on there's Google a bunch of stuff to read amazon yeah there is so check it out i've got a couple of them here look at this push oh nice. highway man Ooh, genius genius and then over there it's hard to see but over there is planet symbiote the oh marvel there it is hey you can get those at midtown comics i found those on midtown comics um nice <laughs> there you go right thanks a lot mark thank you be good